0: Well, here we are in our fifth uh, part of our six-part series on Jude, and this week we get to kind of the end of where he tells us, you know, what we are contending against. And one of the things I want to start out just to let us know is while, you know, much of Jude is very much about, you know, what we've got to contend against and understanding the... uh, the challenges that we're going to face, understanding that there is going to be darkness in this world that we have to stand against, that is not the majority of the Christian faith. And any time we live the Christian life like it's all about this battle against something, we rob ourselves of the tremendous joy of experiencing God and chasing Him. The reason Jude did this, the reason this letter was written is because when we don't understand what it is we have to contend against, when we don't contend for the faith, then it robs us of the joy that we could have in Christ. It makes us ineffective in our Christian walk. I didn't say we lose our Christian walk, but we become ineffective. And that's what the enemy wants is a bunch of ineffective Christians in this world. He wants us scared he wants us weak if he lost us to christ then the next thing he's going to do is to try to make us as ineffective as he can and so he sends as we've talked about these false teachers false believers false motives within ourselves these are the things that he's going to use to come at us to distract us and to keep our eyes from being focused on jesus and so this week, we talk about the last thing that we are to contend against, and that is against the world, against worldliness. And I know in, in church life, worldliness can really kind of take on a, a, a meaning of its own, right? If you've grown up in church, you know what I mean. And, and the, the, the word worldliness just kind of gets attached to like anything we don't like. And, and especially in churches, for some reason, it's just, it's just too much of the world. And, and maybe, maybe not. Sometimes it's just because we don't like it. It's not our preference. And worldliness has nothing to do with it. And so what I want us to look at today in Jude 17 through 19 is what does it mean to really fight against worldliness? What is worldliness? Because Jude tells us, starting in verse 17, he says, But you must remember, beloved. The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And so the first thing for us to really start to understand in this is we have to know the difference between the world and the kingdom. Because there is a profound difference. It is the difference in light and dark, life and death. It really is. And if we don't learn to recognize the difference in what is the kingdom of God, what is the, the, the spirit of God, and what is the spirit of the world, what is the fruit of the flesh, you know, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the spirit, understanding the differences and where they come from, then sometimes we're going to get caught up in the things of the world not even know we're there. Because... As it is, too many Christians, and I don't say this in a judgmental way, but it is a truth, too many Christians live by the ways of the world. Scripture is not their foundation. It's their emergency plan. They live by the ways of the world, and then when they reap the fruit of that way of the world, suddenly God becomes a really good idea. And they're hunting, and they're like, okay, I know there's an answer for this in here somewhere. And they're searching, and they're like, okay, God, if you'll save me, I'll never do it again, I promise. And they don't see the fact that they're in the situation they're in simply because they don't have a scriptural foundation in their lives. They're just following along, doing what the world says. And so too many Christians are enamored by pop culture. Now, I said enamored. Like, it's what drives them in life. Enamored by pop culture, by celebrities, by secularism. By whatever the fad of the moment is. It's what drives their lives. And when Christians stop living on the foundation of the gospel. And start following popular culture. It always ends poorly. It can't be anything else. It will always take us away from God. It will always render us ineffective in our Christian walk. And it will always lead to Trouble that was unnecessary in the life of a Christian. I mean, let's just face it. Life is hard enough as it is. Then we start piling unfaithfulness and and the the fruit of that into our lives, and it's just going to get exponentially harder. And so Jude is calling his readers back to faithfulness by a simple request here. And I love it. Why? He says, remember the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? That is a call back to the truth of Scripture. If we'll just get back into the word, back into scripture, we will, the the difference in the world and the kingdom of God will be illuminated for us and we'll see the differences. It will all start with remembering the truth that they've already been taught. You see, God didn't change. Have you ever been in life and you're like, man, where is God and what is going on and I don't know what's happening and everything's changed? No, everything didn't change. Because God stayed exactly the same. He stayed who He was, doing what He does, and He will never change. And so if we're at that out of touch with him, guess who it was that changed. We're the ones that took our eyes off of Him and went wandering. Anybody in here ever gotten lost? Any in here got lost wouldn't admit you got lost, man? I don't need directions. You know, that doesn't happen so much anymore now with GPS. We men got saved, didn't we? We got saved. GPS saved the day. I know right where I'm at. We just need to take six left turns here. You know, only here in Missouri does that make sense. But you get in some of these back roads, you're like, where am I going? (laughs) It just keeps going. And so the, the importance of what they're going to remember is that they are a part of God's kingdom. He says, I'm going to read back the predictions. There's going to be scoffers. There's going to be these people that are going to be ungodly. They're of the world and they're going to pull you away from Christ. And when you remember this and you see it on display, you see the truth clearly, it's going to solve a lot of the problems that you're facing in the moment. You know why? Because biblical truth isn't hard, it's not difficult. It does take time to learn and it does require us to think because God gave us a brain and he wants us to use it. He's not going to think for us, but he didn't make it hard as in only a select few can really understand this. He made it available to everyone. He made his spirit available to everyone and he says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. It's, It's right there. And so as they remember some of the things, he says, remember the predictions of the apostles. So what were some of those predictions? Listen to John fifteen nineteen. Just as Jesus speaking, and he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That seems pretty cut and dry, right? That's not hard. What's he telling us? He says, you're going to be different. You're going to be different. You're going to be weird. You're going to stick out in this world. That is who I have called you to be. I called you out of the world. And so too many Christians want to be loved by the world and by the church at the same time. And guess what? It can't happen. It's just not a thing. It's not possible. Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you. And so part of that is we can learn, what does the world actually celebrate? When we really get down to it, what does the world celebrate? Godlessness. The world at its core celebrates godlessness. And any expression that validates that belief, it really does. And so 1 John 519 says we know that we are from god and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one again pretty cut and dry the whole world lies in the power of the evil one so he's the the prediction of the apostles is what is there's two kingdoms at play here there's the world and there's the kingdom of god and you can't be in both And the fruit and the actions and the values of each are going to be so diametrically opposed to one another that when you look clearly at them for what they are, you'll see the difference. You'll know the difference. You you won't question, is this from God or not? Now, if you need proof that the world is in the power of the evil one, just watch any truly cultural performance that is completely pop culture in any culture. Okay, I'm not just picking on our culture. It doesn't matter where you are. One that truly just celebrates the spirit of the age that they're in, and you'll see it. Now, here in America, what did we just have? We just had the Grammy Awards here. Now, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? They, they, they genuinely just had a full-on satanic worship service. And I'm not blowing this out of proportion. It was a genuine homage to Satanism in which they called it unholy and the TV network that it aired upon tweeted ahead of time and said, we're ready to worship when they were talking about the upcoming performance. Now here's what gets me is that Christians are shocked when this happens. I can't believe that that happened. You know what? I've never been shocked by the world acting like the world. And that's exactly what Jude says. He goes, in the last time, remember they told you this, there's going to be scoffers. What were they doing? They were scoffing. They were mocking people of God. They were mocking people of faith by putting right in our face what they actually believe and follow. I'm not mad at them. You know why? Because John said it. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Being mad at the world for acting like the world is like being mad at a person who can't swim for drowning. It doesn't make sense. We we just have to expect it. I mean, that's, oh, that's what's going to happen. That's the way the world is. And so when we are mocked, by an unbelieving culture, don't be offended. Understand that they're doing what they do and we're going to do what we do and we don't respond in kind and we're not belligerent, but we still are going to stand on the truth. And we cannot be shocked of this because we are called to the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven and not this earth. We are strangers and aliens in this world. And we got to stop trying to fit in. Now, that doesn't mean we automatically alienate ourselves either. I, I've seen too many Christians take this the other way. It's like, nope, I'm going to, you know, and then they just act like jerks. And you're like, that's not persecution, man. That's just, you're, you're being ridiculous. That's not persecution. You just did that to yourself. But we really are. Called to be separate. God calls us out of that darkness, and we are to live counterculturally, And in some ways, be even subversive to the culture. It is subversive to our culture for a person to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. Why? Because what does the world teach us right now? Indulge yourself and do whatever you want. Jesus said, no, you want to follow me, you would deny yourself first. That's a subversive message to our culture. Guess what? Our culture is not going to like it. And we can't soften that blow by saying, well, you know, let's just, you know, it's okay. He doesn't really mean deny yourself. Yeah, no, he did mean deny yourself. He absolutely meant it. And we can't water that down. And when Christians for some reason, are desperate to be received and accepted by the world, they'll start violating some of those standards. They'll start compromising some of those standards just to be heard. And one of those standards that was more common, many of you probably even heard of it, I personally never liked it, was an idea called seeker-sensitive worship. Seeker-sensitive worship. How many heard that phrase? What it meant was we're going to take, and many, many churches in our country did it. I mean, it was a fad, and it came and it went, and it didn't produce the fruit that people promised. Surprise, surprise. But what it was was we're going to water down our Sunday services so that they'll be more attractive to lost people So we won't get into repentance. We won't get into sin. We're just going to talk about God's love, and we're going to turn it into motivational speeches, and we're going to try to get them in church, and then when they're in church, we're going to hope that we can share the gospel with them, and they'll get saved. Now, here's the problem I have with that, is every pastor that stands in a pulpit is called by God to preach the gospel. We can't compromise the gospel to please people who don't even believe what we believe? And how are they going to come to believe it if all they're doing is coming in and hearing something that's really more a reflection of the world that they already live in? Where is the difference in darkness and light? And what it really gets me is that when pastors embrace this kind of mentality, what they're saying is, I'm going to forego my calling in hopes that somebody else will do it for me. I'm not going to preach the gospel, but I'm going to get them into church, and I'm going to get a bunch of people together and just hope that somewhere along the line, somebody will be faithful. You know what? If I'm not doing it, it's probably not going to happen in the rest of the church either. Because we're going to set the tone, and the gospel is what we rely on. The gospel is what we preach. What is the gospel? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are separated from God and we are condemned in our sins. And the only way to be reconciled to God is to put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. And only those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ can be saved. Now, how many of you just felt so uncomfortable just now you can't come back to church? See that's what the world does. When we don't contend against worldliness, it will start to pick apart the the, the subtle changes, little things. That if I oh, do this, and it'll promise the world, and it renders us ineffective. You know why? Because church minus the gospel is one hundred percent ineffective. <laughs> there's no point. And so, there's really an easy answer to this. And what he says, and that's Romans 12, too, where he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The more we walk with God, the less appeal the world will have, and the more we will recognize the darkness that is ruling the world. And I can tell you this firsthand. I've, I've just experienced I, in my life, as I have walked with God, the more I have accepted the truth of God, the more I look at the world and just think, no, no, I, I don't want that. I, I, it's not that I want to go against a war against the world. I actually look at it and I'm like, oh, people are caught in that. And no, it's going to destroy people. You just learn to recognize the darkness for what it is. And you can dress it up, call it whatever you want. Darkness is darkness. And so the real question for a Christian living in this world that is in the power of the evil one, and God didn't just take us out, Jesus even prayed, he says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, I'm praying that you protect them in the world, God wants us in this world as lights shining in darkness, he wants to put us on display for him, Are you willing to be put on display for God in a world of darkness to shine as a light in which, you know what, light attracts all kinds of attention, good and bad, positive and negative. You can't mistake light. And that's what he has called us to do. And so the real question for a Christian living in this world is will you conform to the pattern of the world, go along to get along? Or will you be transformed by the Spirit of God and shine your light for all the world to see? Because we can't do both. You can't. They are literally moving in opposite directions, and it's up to us to learn the difference in God's kingdom and the world around us. What is of God's kingdom? What is worldliness? Worldliness elevates the self. Worldliness elevates desire that is opposed to God. Worldliness says indulge. Godliness says deny. Worldliness says hate. God says love. You you can't do both. And we have to make the choice. And so as we live for God, there is always going to be people who don't like it. If the world is in the power of the evil one, then that means there will be, and and this is an unfortunate truth, but there will always be people who are just not going to listen to God. They're not. They're, They're convinced that their way is superior. They are determined to live by sin and by their own desires and by worldliness. They're going to live that way no matter what. God knows this. The offer of grace is still there, but it's been rejected, and and they are are numb now. Their consciences are seared, and they're going to go along with the flow of the world all the time. And when we come along and shine a light, pointing in a different direction, they aren't going to like it. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to scoff. That's what he says here, because scoffers are everywhere. See, ungodly cultures will elevate the loudest and most belligerent scoffers in the group. Amen? They they will. They will elevate the voices that present the world's point of view, and they will hold them up, and they will celebrate them. They'll give them a voice. They'll give them a platform and expect others to follow them. And for us, knowing that they are there and learning to see them for what they are is a common teaching in scripture. It's discernment. It's a common teaching in scripture. Jude has already said it. He, he already told us, you know, remember the prediction. And he says, there'll be scoffers everywhere. Listen, he's, he's probably quoting what he heard from, from Peter. Because in second Peter three, three through four, it says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? How many of you have noticed one of the first things that scoffers in this world will do? Unbelievers who are mocking believers in what we believe, they will always find something to latch on to to make fun of as though it's unreasonable. I hear it all the time. Oh, Adam and Eve. Oh, okay, so there's talking snake. So you believe in the talking snake. Well, yeah, actually I do. You can make fun of me all you want. I wasn't there, and neither were you, and the Bible says this, and I don't know what was going on. There's some weird stuff happening there, I'll admit it, but uh, the world was very different in the Old Testament. See, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to try to prove my point. Oh, you you just, you believe that there could be a worldwide flood? You know how ridiculous that is? It's, no, I, I don't actually, because uh, it's not ridiculous, because... Science has shown that there's continental drift, and there's probably one large continent at the time, which science has already said, and if there was a flood, it probably wasn't what you're thinking now because everything was connected. Yeah, there was, and everything changed at that point. Well, you're just ridiculous. Well, Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. People thought Noah was ridiculous until it started raining, so we'll find out. You see, you don't win in an argument with scoffers. Their entire method is there to just goad you into arguing on their terms. And that's why Jude is saying, remember that this is going to happen. Don't be knocked off center by it. Don't let it get under your skin. Don't think you've got to prove yourself to them. Don't think you've got to prove God to them. God can take care of himself. You don't have to prove God to anyone. We just have to share the gospel. We just have to walk in faith. You see, in biblical thought, scoffers are those who mock God, his ways, and those who follow him. They feel safe. Literally, they feel safe from judgment and have no fear of God, so they brazenly act in ways that are immoral. Brazenly. And all of this is the result of the idolatry that comes from not worshiping God. If they don't worship God, they're going to worship something. And when we don't worship God, we will create something to worship. We've talked about this already, that worship, you know, the image of man and and birds and animals and creeping things is this downward trend of what, what men serve and what people serve that will always take them further and further away from God and even further and further away from themselves. We are made for worship, and we will worship something. It will either be the worship of the Most High who created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence, and our worship will elevate us to a new place, to new ideas, to to greater heights of understanding reality, or it will drag us down lower. There is no horizontal worship. There is no horizontal worship. We either worship the truth or follow a lie into destruction. That's it. And so, listen to Isaiah 46, 5 through 10. It says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And when God asks a question like that, get ready. Because God is saying, yeah, really? You, you want to compare me with Anything? You see, He's the we, we talked about last week. He is the Almighty. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He, he is everything. He is the very definition of existence. That's why he gave the name I am at the burning bush. Because he just is. Apart from God, there is no other. And so he says, verse 6, he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse... And weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. He is literally pointing out the illogic of, of idolatry. Saying, you reached into your purse, you pulled out some gold, you gave it to a goldsmith, they fashioned it into something, then they set it down, and then they bowed down and worshiped it. And he's like, do you not see the process of what has just happened? says they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. See, God says, there's nothing that's going to compare with me. There is no comparison to be made. All idolatry is foolishness. It's all this kind of idiotic, closing your eyes, cognitive dissonance, worshiping something that you literally control yourself. That's not worship. That's not God. And it's going to destroy you. And he says, remember who I am. And notice God says it too. Jude said, remember. God says, remember. Why? Because it's not changing. And so these scoffers, they look nowhere but to themselves for guidance and direction. Their idols are creations of their own mind and their own ungodly desires. And so they scoff and mock the one true God because they live in a state of permanent cognitive dissonance. When I was in the country of Turkey, studying Islam under an Islamic professor, we were asking questions, and we realized very quickly that what he was teaching just was not internally logical. It didn't work. And we were pointing out the inherent contradictions of what he was saying within the, the, the religion of Islam. That if this is true, then you're saying this is true. You've got two contradictory positions here. And we kept asking him these questions, and he was frustrated because he couldn't answer it. And finally, he said something that I could not believe. Because he told everybody, he says, just hold on, hold on, hold on. And let's, let's, just, let's just take a break for a second. And he says, look, everybody needs to realize that faith and intellect are irreconcilable. And I about fell out of my chair. Because he didn't realize what he just said. He said, I know... He said he checks his brain at the door in order to believe what he believes. Because you know what? I'm going to tell you this right now. God said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Faith and intellect are not irreconcilable. The more I use my mind to search the things of God, the more it makes sense. God doesn't ask us to check our brain and turn it off in order to believe something unreasonable. He does just the opposite. He says, no, I want you to to think through it. I want you to meditate on it. How many times in the Psalms does it talk about meditating upon the word of God? He says, think deeply on these things. You'll find them to be true. You will find the truth. These scoffers, though they sound intelligent, though they can make some, some great quotes that, you know, will show up on Google if you, if you look it up and then people think they're smart and they've learned something. I'm going to tell you something, that is so surface that if you spend 10 minutes really thinking through it and looking in Scripture and knowing it, you can knock that stuff out of the park right now. It doesn't, it, it, it won't bother you. I'm not saying you're going to convince them because they're already decided not to be convinced. What I'm saying is you don't have to look at it and it's like, you know, that's just they're too smart for me. No, they're not. They aren't. You know why? Because they don't have the truth. When you have the truth, you have all that you need. And so their idols are silent. They're powerless. They're lifeless. And yet they serve them anyway, knowing that they provide nothing. And to cover up that cognitive dissonance of knowing That their idols are powerless, they mock the one true God to feel stronger. And this is worldliness in every age and will be until Judgment Day. Okay? It's not going anywhere. This is a reality that Christians will live in and have lived in from the very first day. The day of Pentecost, what happened? They're speaking in different languages, it's all this. And what did the scoffers say? Oh, they're drunk. There's a miracle of God happening right in front of them as the Holy Spirit is empowering them to preach the gospel in languages they don't know. There's a miracle happening. The resurrection has happened. The Holy Spirit has come. Major things are happening in the world, and there are still people standing at a difference going, oh, they're just drunk. Why? Because they don't want the truth. Now, did those scoffers win the day? No, 3,000 people were saved that day. But you know what? Scoffers are going to scoff, it's going to happen. And we can't. We have to learn to fight that because there is a truth. Christians will always be an object of ridicule by worldly voices. Mark that down. Be ready for it. Christians will always be an object of ridicule by worldly forces. It's something we have to expect and something we have to develop an immunity against because they are everywhere at all times in all places. We can't let it disrupt us from the mission of God. You know why? Because scoffers, they're going to scoff. But you know what? Seekers, they want the truth. There are people that want God, that are looking for truth. And the scoffers are just there to try to drown us out. And if we give in to them, that's what happens. They drown us out and we don't share the gospel. Or we decide, you know what? You don't matter. I'm going to leave you to God. God will deal with you. I'm going to spend my energy to people who want to know the truth, who want to walk with God. And so we have to develop the attitude of Proverbs. And that is, fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. We just have to believe that and trust it. We're not going to save everyone. Okay? No matter, I don't care how good a leader or whatever... Christians will always be, in a sense, the minority in the world, okay? They will always be the minority, so there's always going to be people that are going to stand against us. We can't let that stop us. We can't try to alter our message to, to reach more people because you're not reaching them with anything. We have to stand on the gospel, and we contend against their goal because what is the ultimate goal of scoffers? Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Division. That is their goal within the church, to divide us. Because when we are unified by Spirit, when we are unified in mission, what did Jesus say? He says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Hell itself could come against us and it will not be able to hold back the church from doing what it's supposed to do. And any study of church history, the 2,000 years of the Christian church shows that to be true. Every time the church gets focused on the gospel, gets focused on reaching people, is focused where it's supposed to be focused, it becomes a force that is completely unstoppable. And the more the scoffers try to stop it, the more powerful it becomes. And so there's a a paradox in this, is that the more the world opposes us, the more we should rejoice because it means we're doing something right. When the world accepts your spirituality, that's when you need to be worried. When the world has no problem with your Christian message, something is wrong. You've taken out the offensive parts of the gospel. And you know what? Without the offensive parts of, hey, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, and God doesn't like sinners, he loves people, but he doesn't like sin, and he's going to judge sin, and if you're still in your sin, you're going to be judged. We take that out, guess what? Christianity has no meaning. And so we have to fight against that because our unity is a unity of the Spirit, Founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not unity at all costs. It's unity in the gospel. It is unity by the spirit. Because if we ignore that foundation, all other foundations will eventually fail and we will divide. And that is their goal. Look at what Jude says. It is these who cause divisions. They are worldly people devoid of the spirit. So how do we avoid these types of divisions? We seek unity in the gospel, and when there are disagreements and offenses, we follow the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody ever disagreed with someone in church? It's rare, right? Like we 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 just so get along and we don't get petty and we don't gossip and we don't we don't do any of that stuff, right? So when those things happen, and we need to set things right, Jesus actually gave us the formula for how to do it. How to preserve the unity of the gospel, how to preserve the unity of the spirit, but also how to weed out the scoffers who aren't going to be unified with us because they're not with us, okay? So he says it in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, how many of y'all have heard this, right? You know this. Now, there's an important distinction I want to make right up here up front. It says if he actually sins against you, not wore that shirt that you don't like, not voted for a different color carpet that you didn't like. That's not a sin. (laughs) That's just a preference, and we all got to get over ourselves on those things. He says if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Step one, alone, not everybody else first, alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Yay, isn't that awesome? It's called reconciliation, it's what we do. This is what we're about, second chances. Hey, you did this, and man, that was wrong, and I want to talk to you about it. And you show them, and they're like, you know what, you're right. I'm sorry, I did that. Hey, it's okay, let's pray, and you know what, I forgive you. Oh, Thank you, yes, please forgive me, because that, that was my bad. And hey, unity, it works. It says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now you realize that's not talking about worship. It's talking about conflict resolution. It's talking about reconciliation. That if we will guard our unity in the gospel and value each other over petty differences and actually seek reconciliation, Jesus says, I'm with you. I will be with you through this entire process to make sure it goes the right way. Now, let's talk about this, because the point of this is not just to gang up on someone and make them see your point of view. Again, an actual sin needs to be involved. I I can't overemphasize that. This isn't just about gaining alliances and ganging up on someone. There's a process at play here that is going to reveal real hearts. It's going to reveal what's actually going on. So go alone and talk. Take the initiative to set things right. Preserve unity within yourself as best you can. If something happened to you, you go to them. Don't wait. You go and start to try to fix it. Okay? If they won't listen to them, what's the second step? Take one or two, take two or three other people. Take some more people, okay? What this does is not just to pressure the other person, it establishes the truth of the matter with the people involved. Have you ever been mad at someone and then you get a third point of view and somebody's like, you know, you're kind of wrong too. And you're like, ooh, I didn't think about that. That's what he's talking about in that you get two or three other people involved that, that don't have a dog in this fight. And they're going to listen to all of it and go, you know what? Yeah, maybe that was, yeah, that one, you need to repent. Or y'all need to get over it because this is personal and y'all are wasting our time. You know, that happens too. Like if there's an actual problem, it's going to start escalating at this point. But if there's not, it's just going to fizzle out. Because you're going to get other people in there and they're going to be like, y'all are fighting over this? That's ridiculous. Let it go. I don't think anybody sinned against anyone. I think y'all are just angry. Let it go. Let's pray together and let's just let this go. You see, that's what community, Christian unity and community will do. It brings clarity. But if they won't listen to them, then what? Establish the truth of the matter before the congregation. Let me tell you something. When you get to this level and somebody's being that stubborn about not making a sin right, how many of you in here, you know, we can hold on for a while, but the Holy Spirit starts convicting. How many enjoy that process of conviction? When the Holy Spirit is literally like, hey, fix it. No. Oh, you're not going to listen? <laughs> fix it now. And it just gets louder. And after a while, we're like, okay, okay, God, okay, okay, okay. And, and we fix it. And God's like, thank you. And peace returns. But you see, if a person can make it through this process, of getting all the way to the church being made known like, hey, so-and-so is just uh, really causing problems. And they've done this, and it's been established, and we need to call them to repent. If they can actually make it through an entire church looking at them going, um, you need to repent. And I mean, a, a legit thing. What are you going to guess about them at that point? They're not saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit, which is what Jude said. He said, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. And that's what this process does, is it outs the people that are troublemakers, that are devoid of the Spirit, that are scoffers, that are going to destroy the unity of the Spirit within a church. Instead of letting it take root and people divide, it just says, you know what, gang up on the sin. I'll take care of it. Because that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, we're two or three gathered. I'm there. He's saying, I will oversee this process. I will be with you. I will protect my church, and I will guard it, and I will get you through this process. Because I'm going to tell you, none of us looks at that Matthew 18 process and is like, ooh, sign me up. I want to do that. Yeah, it's scary. And yet Jesus says, I will be with you. That's how we protect the unity that we have. That's how we guard against worldliness. Because when worldliness truly comes into the church, sins against other people are going to happen. It's going to happen. And if it's not resolved, it will destroy a fellowship. It will absolutely destroy a fellowship. And so it's up to us to contend against worldliness. But we don't do it by fighting like the world does. We do it by fighting for the gospel, for the unity of the gospel, and by following the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day, this time. God, I thank you for this this faith family that we have here. God, the relationships. Lord, the the encouragement and, and love within this body. God, I pray that you just continue to foster that, that unity of the gospel, the unity of the spirit, our fellowship with one another, God, that is, that is sweet and it is real. Lord, I pray that you help us to contend against worldliness in our own lives, that we wouldn't bring it into your church, God, that we would deal with it on our own, and, and where we need help, we would get help. But God, that this would be about your mission, your kingdom that we would rejoice in being your people and we would rejoice together. God, we thank you for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, help us to walk with him. Lord, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.